You have done well, Prime Minister. I shall waste no time in building my administration. Choose wisely. I will hold you personally responsible for their failures. Yes, Master. Uh, is there anything more you require? Go. Rule my people. It's time for Send in the Clones! Join your hosts, Buto and Robbie, on an epic journey through a galaxy far, far away as they follow the escapades of Anakin Skywalker and the Jedi Knights with the clone army of the Republic in their struggle against Count Dooku and the droid army of the evil Separatists. So step in and prepare for adventure because it's time to send in the clones! In this episode, the Sith and Death Watch succeed in their takeover on Mandalore. The ambitious Pre Vizsla is reluctant to relinquish his position, so Darth Maul challenges the Death Watch leader to a fearsome duel. Hey, troops, it's your old buddy Bucho, a Clone Wars rookie on my first ever watch of the Clone Wars, and next to me in the dropship on his third ever watch of the Clone Wars, he's the Maul to my survivors. It's your trusty pal Robbie. How's it going, everyone? We are going to talk about the one. 103rd episode in the StarWars.com Clone Wars chronology. It's written by Chris Collins. It's directed by Bosco Ng. It's Season 5, Episode 15, Shades of Reason. It's Robbie. Let's roll out with you letting us know what you remembered about Shades of Reason before you rewatched it again this week. Well, this one is kind of known for one thing, and you know what it is. It's the big fight. It's the big fight between... Maul and Pre Vizsla. That would be hard to forget after you saw that. Yeah, it's... <laughs> that would be real hard to forget. It's kind of impressive. In fact, it's kind of funny too because uh, I was watching uh, Dave Filoni's sort of background on the episode and he said that what he wanted is he wanted to show Pre Vizsla as sort of the Mandalorian that we all thought Boba Fett was. So it's kind of like, he's like, we I couldn't have him just fall into a Sarlacc pit. You know, I, yeah, had to, right. I had to show off everything that he could do. And he does. I mean, this is yeah. just, it's an insane fight. And it's just a lot of fun. Yeah, between this one and the recent episode with Obi-Wan fighting both Maul and Savage at the same time, I've got to say, I mean, like I keep saying, you know, when we do the show at the pace we're doing it, sometimes it's hard to remember everything because you don't really get a chance to reflect. You know, we finish an episode, then we're on to the next one. But... I assume that this fight and the aforementioned one with Obi-Wan, Maul and Savage, I assume that people have these two fights ranked real high in their best fights of Clone Wars. Yeah, I mean, this is kind of the pinnacle of where we've been uh, heading this whole time, it feels, you know what I mean? It's just like, it's so well done and it's so well choreographed. There's not a moment where you're lost Yeah. in where things are happening. I mean, it's just really, really well done. And that's, I guess, one of the things that I just... You know, it's weird because I feel like a small sense of pride for them, you know, to like, like, right. you know, good job, guy. You know what I mean? Even though I have nothing to do with it or anything like that other than me being a fan. But it's really, really cool to see that you never lose your place. You always know where the action is taking place. It's just really, really well done. I also like the montages. There's a montage in the first part of the episode and a montage in the second part of the episode. Or at least say act, right? There's a montage in the first act and a montage in the second act. And the first act is the gangsters coming in and starting their reign of terror. And the second act is Death Watch pretending to take down the gangsters. And both of these montages were really 
quite nicely handled, I thought, and fun as well. There's sort of a comedic element, especially when Savage is involved. Somehow in this episode, at the start, like Savage is this bank robber all of a sudden, and in the second part, when he has that pretend fight with Pre Vizsla, you know, at the end, he's, he goes down and he has that <laughs> look up at Pre Vizsla with almost a little smile. I, but they, I know how comedic they were supposed to be, but I think we were supposed to have fun with those moments, and I did have fun with those moments. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, that's one of the things that if you stop and think about how much has to happen in this episode, I mean, you're basically talking about the fall of a planet, you know, the the attack of a planet, the saving of the planet by another group, and a huge, huge fight for dominance at the end, all while trying to get this message of, well, it's a fake message. To the people. I mean, and it's one of those things, it's just, if you really stop and think about what had to go down in this episode, it's amazing that they got it done in 22 minutes. It's really, it's really kind of impressive. I gotta say that everything from Act 2 onwards was impressive to me, but it really felt like it should have been two episodes when it comes to the switch in the first act when all of Mandalore suddenly switches from pacifist to ready for war, because as much as I liked that first montage it didn't do enough to sell me on the idea that this whole planet would switch on a dime like that. And especially when Satine has been established as a very strong character, a character who doesn't take a backward step. You know, she is up front. She's not going to stand by and let Pre Vizsla come in and steamroll her announcement to the whole crowd like that, like she does in this episode. So the way Satine is written in this episode is the weakest part of the episode, and it's it's pretty weak. It might, it's one of the weakest parts of the season so far to me. The way that Satine is written in such a contrived way to completely change her character almost from this hardcore... I mean, this is the woman who, when the docks were being overtaken by gangsters, you know, she picks up her blaster and she goes and takes care of business. And so the way that she was just steamrolled, especially after she started the speech, with a good point and a point that seemed to make sense, she was saying... This is nothing to to worry about too much. It's a few gangs coming in and we can handle them. And then the fact that there was this massive crowd that was able to assemble and they were not troubled. You know, it didn't feel like these gangs had taken over Mandalore and that Mandalore was under lockdown or under such siege that they would just flip as fast as they flipped so that every person in that crowd was cheering for Pre Vizsla. I felt that whole thing was very, very rushed. And the way that Satine was written was actually poor in this episode. Well, it's weird. I I mean, I totally get what you're saying. And if I stop and think about that, especially from a Satine point of view, it just, it really doesn't make sense. The only thing that I can say is that I think what we're supposed to be led to believe is that the entire planet is being overrun. It's almost like the way that I've looked at it was that when Pre Vizsla comes in to kind of interrupt her, I guess... Public announcement. Yeah. The switch has already been happening. Death Watch has already been coming to the rescue. And it's almost like what you see after that, the montage of them kind of helping out and and saving the day, has already been happening. And so the people are already at that point seeing that Death Watch is probably a better thing. And when he comes in to basically restate, at least from my point of view, he's restating what's already been happening and saying she hasn't been doing her job We've been coming in here and doing this. I think that's why the the people flip. That's just my the way that I took it. I don't know if it was meant to be that way, but that's how I kind of understood it. It's almost like it's almost out of order timing-wise. Yeah. Something about the storytelling overall is just a little bit 
I mean, I say a little bit janky. It's very janky where it goes from the first act to the second act. But once it gets past that scene and Pasadena's is in jail next to Almec, this is, I mean, we talked about not knowing whether the Savage was supposed to be a little bit comedic in his earlier scenes. And I'm sure we're not supposed to laugh at Pasadena being thrown next to Almec. I just thought it was, maybe it's a black humor that if it's not galling enough that she's thrown into a cell, She's thrown into a cell next to Almec, and she had to listen to Almec blathering on again about how his corruption was in the interests of the people. So, And so maybe I wasn't supposed to smile at that, but I did have a bit of a wry smile. You know, for Satine, as the old saying goes, when troubles come, they come not in single spies, but in battalions. Yeah, I thought that was pretty funny too. But, I mean, as you see later in the episode, there's sort of a almost a reason for it. There's a reason for them to be so close in proximity so Maul can do his questioning. I also love when Maul was getting to know Almec, I loved how casual Maul's body language was, the way he was just casually leaning on the doorframe, first with his arms folded, then with his hands folded behind his back, just super casual, as if he's intentionally choosing not to project any menace or intimidation while he's in Almec's space, because the Maul that I had thought of before this is that stalking tiger maul, that maul that is just terrifying at all moments. And here he's basically doing what I often do when I'm, I don't know, I like leaning against door frames and only with my arms by my back. It's not, you know, it's very informal. And I liked how maul feels like a very different person from that prowling tiger that we met all the way back in The Phantom Menace. Just more and more the animators and Sam Witwer's performance are showing us this progression of this character. Well, and that's uh, one of the things that I really, really like about it is that he's much more cunning. I mean, I, I have no idea if this was a plan that came directly from Lucas, but when they kind of had the idea that, hey, we're going to bring Maul back, it makes more sense to make him more than just muscle. Yeah. Or, as you said, like the tiger, the chaos reigns kind of <laughs> guy, you know? I mean, of course, that's what he's instilling, but he's also planning. He's cunning. Because we don't see what happened really before episode one we didn't see his training with Sidious sure I mean how much of that kind of the political things that that Palpatine was putting in place how much of those things did he teach Maul because if you really think about it what he's doing is exactly what Sidious did with the Senate and basically creating a problem and then coming in swooping in with the solution it's exactly the same thing as what's happened with the Republic only on a planetary scale instead of a galaxy scale so that's one of the things that i really really like about it is that it's it is showing that he's just more than just death and destruction he's he's actually got a brain on him too i also loved how pre once the challenge was thrown down by maul pre did not hesitate there's no surprise on his face there's no retreat in his body language in fact he starts stalking down the stairs and like a fighting stance even before he commands Bo-Katan to throw Maul's weapon. It's like he knew this moment was going to come and he's been looking forward to it. And what a great scrap. I mean, we've already mentioned it. This Maul versus pre fight, first it's blade against blade. And then pre is hurling out all of his weapons, the grenades, the flamethrower from his wrist. And part of me was wondering why Maul wasn't using the force here. It like, would have made more sense for a streetwise Sith-like Maul to start slinging some telekinesis or lightning or something, so I just figured he was choosing not to use it because it was a fight of honor, and the soldiers who were bound by their code who are watching, and it would be honor-bound to follow him if they won, they would consider the force use maybe a breach of honor somehow, so maybe that was it. Maybe it was just that Maul backs himself to be able to beat 
anyone. <laughs> That's not a Jedi without using the Force himself. And it turns out he didn't need any Force tricks anyway. He finally disarms and disbackpacks Previsla. And we see then a really, really violent end to the fight in which both combatants no longer have weapons. And it's all mauled by that point. He's battering the boss of Death Watch with kicks to the head, elbows to the face. There's a brutal knee that the animators decide was hardcore enough that they should throw in some spit flying out of Pre Vizsla's mouth, which I actually thought was a tooth or two at first until you see Pre Vizsla, you know, lying on the ground and we see him grimace. And luckily he still has his full set of chompers in, so they weren't quite going that gruesome. But between the sound design and the animation... It just felt like you could feel every blow that Moore landed. And I was wincing, Robbie. I mean, you and I have watched our share of fights, you know, in our time. And I was wincing watching this cartoon fight just because it was so well done, so well animated. And the sound design was so on point. Yeah, I mean, it's weird that you say that, you know, this is kind of an honor-bound fight, like you said. There's a part of me that thinks that from a strategy point of view, Maul should win, no question. It's almost as if he's not showing his whole potential to the rest of the Death Watch. Because, you know, as you know, as he knows, he's well aware, this is the rule of two, right? You always got to be looking at the the apprentice below you, right? you know, <laughs> to, uh, you know what I mean? It's almost like you don't want to show your whole hand. But then it's, the only problem I have with the whole honor thing is that at what point do all of uh, Pre Vizsla's tricks, you know, all of his gadgets and things like that i mean is that not part of the deal too because i mean it almost seems like his armor should have come off and it should have just been you know a sword fight or a you know hand to hand or what you know what i mean does that make sure. any sense what i'm trying to say it sure it does but i figure if it's a mandalorian fight then you fight like a mandalorian and this kind of shows us how mandalorians fight almost how the ultimate mandalorian fights i mean right talk about obi-wan sometimes is the ultimate jedi and it feels like pre it's kind of the ultimate Mandalorian warrior, you know, maybe not in the sense that he is twisted and power hungry, but in the sense that tactically and maybe strategically, this is how the best Mandalorian fighter fights. And so, yeah, I didn't really question that part of the thing. But I think Maul has already shown, like right at the start, he force chokes Bo-Katan. So the fact that he's got the force and that he can use telekinesis, that's, that's not a secret to anyone in their room by that point. No, I know, but I mean, it's almost like he's he's either holding back for some reason, or he just didn't consider it. I don't know. I don't know what the answer is because, it, like like you said, yeah, I mean, he's he's already shown that he's capable of more than just being kind of brute force. But it's impressive nonetheless. It's like when you see a like an amazing MMA fight, and you, then you start breaking it down, and you go, "Well, why didn't he do that? Why didn't he do what he was capable of this at this point?" It's it may be the same sort of thing. I mean, all I can say is that I really, really enjoyed it. I mean, I think uh, Pre Vizsla does the Mandalorians proud. You know, he, he uh, puts up a good fight. It puts up a better fight than I had expected originally. Sure. Yeah, he does. And I think the other thing that I want to bring up here is when we talked about a friend in need that episode. And I remember in that episode, you had this idea of the Death Watch having this sense of honor. And at the time, I was wondering why I had such a different idea of who the Death Watch were than you did. And I mean, I guess that's because you know a lot more about the Death Watch than I have because you've watched these other episodes in this episode and the previous episode because they talk about, yeah. you know, the fact that they have this honor code is how Maul is going to manipulate them. He's going to use it against them. And so while I liked the fact that a friend in need had the suggestion of this arc where they had become this corrupted sect and so that their honor had 
been broken down these last couple of episodes kind of contradict the friend in need now so the overall story of the death watch is a little bit more janky than i thought it was going to be but now i get why you were leaning into that idea that the death watch had some kind of sense of honor so that's i mean that's been part of this whole journey all the way along it's me finally understanding a lot of the way that you've seen other parts of star wars and so it happens as we go along the show as well i mean it's it's just like uh you know i think even you know, we've seen Jedi lose their way and maybe even other characters lose their ways, you know, throughout even Clone Wars. I mean, look at Ventress. I mean, she's been all over the map, right? <laughs> so, I mean, it's possible for somebody to, for their ideals to change, but it just seemed very strange to me that they would just be, yeah, I'm just going to have fun and drink and... Enslave people, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it just it was, it was just a strange offshoot episode for them sure and it just didn't it just didn't feel natural to me and i guess it's even made more clear now why i felt it was a little strange yeah and if i rewatched it i'm sure i would see it a lot more like you did you know on this project because now i'll have the same or a very similar perspective to what you had but speaking of perspective robbie they show just the edges of the decapitation mm -hmm. the camera kind of dolly rolls behind Bo-Katan and we just see the very top of Previsla's head drop toward the floor and it's a split second it's a couple of frames and I watched <laughs> I'm not ashamed to say I watched this part a bunch of times and I paused it and rewound and paused it just to see the way that they told this part of the story visually and it's pretty masterful you don't actually see I mean remember because obviously this shows for a junior audience as well and they can't go full-on Braveheart about it but you know the camera moves behind Bo-Katan and then we see his body slumped to the floor and the framing is such that you never quite see above his shoulders while the body is in motion so we never actually see his headless body in motion which somehow is more macabre than just seeing the body headless at rest because afterwards we get that shot from above when it's at rest but the way that this decapitation was shot where the camera kind of dolly rolls behind Bo-Katan and then out the other side I thought that was really nicely done and we haven't talked that much about Bo-Katan I guess because she's been the second in command and she hasn't really made any sort of stand but here she really makes a stand because when Maul claims the Death Watch for himself Bo-Katan is all nah -uh, and Death Watch splits in half and this was a moment that I felt a little bit like it backed up what I'd been thinking before about how Maul was thinking about honor when he wasn't using the force because if the Death Watch is going to split just because Bo-Katan says that she won't join them. I can imagine that if Maul had been using the Force and that had been seen as a breaking of the honor code, then a lot more of the Death Watch would have gone with Bo-Katan. I don't know, this is speculation on my part, but it felt like Maul's gambit to fight honorably paid off here because half, at least half of Death Watch stays with him. You know, you could say it could have gone better for him, obviously, <laughs> yeah. if Bo-Katan had stayed and the rest of the Death Watch, but how did you like this decapitation and how did you like the way that Bo-Katan's split is seen where she decides I'm not having any part of this well the definitely you know Maul taking power yeah it's it really is masterfully done and, and done in a way where you know exactly what happens but you don't see any of the actual violence I mean it's probably as as well done as you can do it I think and then yeah when Bo-Katan says you know no I'm not never gonna follow you all that kind of stuff I mean it's it's one of those things where if you really kind of sit and think about it, it makes you kind of question why she would have gone with this plan to begin with. And I think for her, she's more of the pure Mandalorian ideal yeah. about the Mandalorian way of life and all that kind of stuff. And she saw Maul as a means to an end and that she had 
I guess that, uh, I don't know, that confidence, I suppose, that, that Previsla would have come out on top, you know, but as soon as she knew that that's not happening, you know, <laughs> you know, Previsla's laying on the ground, I think at that point she's already made her decision and then it's the same sort of thing. It's that dichotomy of, do I follow the honor of Death Watch or the honor of Mandalore? And I think that's the difference. And it's it's just interesting to see. And it's like, but at the same time, you're part of a terrorist group. Sure. Death Watch has become sort of a terrorist group. Yeah. So Not sort of a terrorist group. I mean, part of their plan is that they have the gangsters roll in and execute civilians. Right. Right. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. So it's a full-on terrorist group, yeah. So at what point do you make that decision that, no, I'm I'm too good for this? You know what I mean? It's, sure. It's a little strange, but I still kind of get it. You know what I mean? It's like... Maybe she saw it as a, you know, I mean, even some in politics may say that sometimes the, you know, the deaths of a few civilians is worth it in the end if you get to a certain point. But I don't know. It's hard to say. But it's interesting to see that there is a a subset of these Death Watch people. Now, it kind of makes you think. It's like, okay, so what happens to them? What do they call themselves? You know, what are they, (laughs) are they, you know, maybe illness watch something not so <laughs> bad as death i don't know what they say i don't know what it is but it's it's an interesting sort of thing that they're playing with here yeah maybe new death watch yeah oh, so <laughs> death watch 2.0 well speaking of interesting ways of shooting things robbie let's talk about our standout shots what was your favorite shot of shades of reason in the interest of trying to pick something a little different I think one of my favorite shots of the episode is when the pikes sort of come out of their hiding place and there's kind of a nice shot, an upshot of of this guy kind of like hitting one of the Mandalorian, I guess it was a droid, I can't remember if it was a droid or if it was another Mandalorian guy, but Pike hits him and then there's another ship kind of coming in overhead, just kind of... It's just a neat shot. It doesn't have real, like, a a bunch of importance to it or anything like that. I just really like the shot. But there were other shots that I really, really liked as well. And I'm I'm pretty sure you might pick one of them. Yeah, my one's going to be a lot more predictable. That square on, long shot of Maul leaping into the air to double kick Pre Vizsla out of his rocket ride. A shot that is wonderfully framed against those massive windows in the hall. And one of those windows... Includes a stained glass image of Satine. That was just a sweet, sweet shot. The other one that I noted was there's a close-up on Previsla backlit against that magical Mandalore skyline just after he does that pretending fight against Savage. And, you know, Savage is on the ground mm. and he's looking up and we see Previsla and just the lighting in that shot was really sweet. But were there any others that you were thinking of? I was thinking the, uh, it almost sums up the entire episode, is Maul lighting the Darksaber in front of his face and has the camera just pans up as it sort of comes into being almost. The Black Saber is such an interesting weapon because it doesn't seem like it's powered by a crystal like the lightsabers are. It's It's just a very interesting thing. But also, I love the shot of Maul walking through the newly opened cell door with the kind of the glass dust right. falling down i really yeah. like that um one of the other shots that i really liked was the, the the little i don't know what kind of droid it was i guess like a tour droid welcome to mandalore boom <laughs> for some reason i just really really liked that the smiley face tv hit droid yeah yeah i just really really liked it it was but there was there was so many shots just like you i mean you didn't come up with any of those and or, or you didn't say any of those but, I mean, it's there's so many really beautiful shots in this episode. It's just, I don't know. It, it's awesome stuff. 
Well, before we bring this one in for a landing, Robbie, we need to sum up. We need to give our ratings. So after your most recent watch of Shades of Reason, how did you like it? Where does Shades of Reason sit on that four-star Robbie scale? Well, for me, the episode is really, really well done. And of course, this is, you know, this is part of the Clone Wars big story. You know what I mean? This is, this sure. is a big story. So, of course, it's going to be recommended. As you said, I think the... Even though I like the way that it's done at the beginning, because I kind of, I don't know, maybe it's a headcanon thing where I've kind of made it work for me. But even though I say that, it's still rushed. But that fight, I mean, come on. So for me, this is a three and a quarter out of four. I just don't feel like it's quite as good as the last episode. I really, really like seeing Maul kind of gather all the pieces, you know, in the last episode. So for this one, it just seemed a little rushed, but still really, really worthy. Yeah, it's an episode with a ton of plot. Like I said, it feels like two episodes worth of plot and not really any character development. And the character development that is shown is character development that makes no sense. You know, what we're talking about with Satine, how she's all of a sudden this weak character who's easy to steamroll. And so that part of the episode, you know, I don't need to go over it again. That didn't work. But the action is super top-notch in the second and third acts in particular. And the Death Watch pretending to take down the gangs was great. There's that epic mano a mano between Maul and Previsla, which I don't know, I'd probably want to watch that Obi-Wan versus Savage and Maul fight again to see which was my favorite. I think that one might still be my favorite, but this one is right way, way up there. And I've got it at eight stained glass windows of Satine out of ten. <laughs> so this fight and the action really elevated what I thought was a little bit of quite ordinary storytelling in the first half to an episode that overall I liked a lot. And that is Mission Accomplished for Season 5, Episode 15, Shades of Reason. So, Robbie, won't you please let the troops out there know what are our communications channels? Sure. We are Bucho and Robbie at Gmail, Twitter, and Instagram. That's B-U-C-H-O-A-N-D-R-O-B-B-Y. Yes, sir. And, of course, the troops can join us again next time for the 104th episode in the StarWars.com Clone Wars Chronology, Season 5, Episode 16, The Lawless. And until then... This is your old buddy Bucho, alongside your trusty pal Robbie, and we are out. Remember, you can support Sending the Clothes for free simply by rating and reviewing the show on iTunes or any other podcast platform, and Bucho and Robbie will read the review on a future feedback episode. And speaking of feedback episodes, you can also send either a text or an audio message of 60 seconds or less to Bucho and Robbie at gmail.com. May the force be with you.